Hey, Sheila. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Is that good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQs just drop shot? I could have been. I have a I like this All shit. Is, it is it's a dance off, bro. It is your Me and Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I'm Lee. And this week, Lee and I are going to be doing something really special. Our Fantasia International Film Festival Roundup. All the films we got to watch from the festival with also leaning towards a little bit of one of the films because we watch it in common, which is going to be Super Dark Times. So, Lee, before we get to all that, I want to know how you're doing, sir. Yeah, doing fine. I mean, obviously, I couldn't um, couldn't go to, to Canada. Where was it again? Montreal? Yeah, I was in Montreal. Yeah, I, well, obviously, I couldn't, you know, I'm, I'm poor, so I couldn't, I couldn't actually fly out to Montreal. <laughs> uh, so, you actually attended this. But, uh, I, you know, I was there in spirit because we got onto the whole email trade thing. You for some screeners to the point where I actually watched more films than you, even though I wasn't there, which is fucking hilarious. <laughs> yeah, actually, you did watch more films than I did. So I was there for the three uh, first days, which is why I didn't get to see the bulk of the films that were there. And so I have to say a big thank you to the festival. I have to say a big thank you also to uh, my friend Guillaume, who uh, set me up. I could stay at his place for the entire weekend as well. So I basically, and my, my girlfriend also stayed at home with the kids so that I could go watch movies in the festival, <laughs> which is fucking awesome. awesome I had a great <laughs> time. I'm looking forward to going back again next year. Uh, but that's it. But all in all, we actually were able to cover, what is it, 13 films total? 13, yeah, 13 films, which is incredible to me. I mean, I, I I expected to cover you to cover stuff and to me just chime in for this episode, not thinking we'd get any further than that. But uh, there's a really weird mix of what we managed to cover. And I think it'll be a really good conversation, just a discussion about some of the some of the weird stuff we've seen at this. <laughs> Definitely. And I mean, this show, we're not going to be playing any real trailers or anything like that. We're just going to jump into it, have our regular conversations uh, in the show notes. You guys are going to have all the titles uh, for the films that we did uh, talk about. And mm -hmm. then we'll basically play the trailer for uh, Super Dark Times because that's the one that we really want to talk about. It's the one we saw in common. So that's basically how the structure is going to be. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to play a couple of promos. And when we come back, we're going to do the Atlantic Screen Connections roundup of the Fantasia International Film Festival. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave hello everyone this is jd from the in session film podcast each week we review the latest from hollywood california well yes brendan we also give top three lists okay yeah thanks again brendan Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. 
On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, sir. <laughs> All right, so welcome back. We're going to get into... The films that we saw, or we covered actually, for the Fantasia International Film Festival, and we're going to start with Lee. Lee, what is the first film that you want to talk about, sir? Okay, the first film I want to talk about is a Thailand film, and it is called Legend of the Broken Sword Hero. Quick synopsis, it's a story of a, of a boy called Joy, uh, that's J-O-I, and essentially he gets bullied in his uh, village where he lives, or he grows up, and in his journeys he goes on to train under a guy on how to be a boxer because his father was a great boxer he should be a great boxer uh and he go basically he stumbles from teacher to teacher village to village meeting people and training under people eventually until it climaxes in a big fight I, uh, i'll be honest i was i wasn't really interested in this film at all. i actually to be fair i requested this film because i thought the trailer looked like it was going to be a, a pretty straightforward fun time it looked like it was like more action than words this general hero story about a guy who can box and his his journey to prove himself uh and i thought it was going to be like that and i guess it, it kind of is but it was far more super opera-y yeah yeah it felt like four or five episodes of a series that sort of stopped at points and then started again and told very similar story and then stopped again very much like a serial drama and fine that can work in that format, but I felt like as a feature, it, it made the film seem much longer than it ever needed to be and never really got across anything other than a need for this guy to punch people, <laughs> which okay. admittedly in some of the action scenes look really good. I mean, the best part about it is they have this kind of use of slow motion, kind of Zack Snyder-ish, where we, we, okay. we get to see the acrobatics unfold in slow motion and see the hits connect. And when, the, when we're in those action scenes... They're actually pretty fun to watch. There's a lot of really memorable parts about it. But it's there's they're actually a significantly smaller portion of the film than walking around and talking to a bunch of people that you don't really care about. I think it'll be interesting. I think if there are fans of that genre, th this might it's straightforward enough to appease whoever is already well aware of maybe Thailand based boxing champion films i suppose it's a very traditional story but i think it's been done before and better and okay. the actual title of it it didn't really it only came into it at the very end almost to the point where it felt like a joke at the end like oh by the way he breaks a sword <laughs> it was very weird so maybe i'm missing some context or something but I, I didn't feel so i felt this was a really difficult film to stay interested in which is unfortunate because I, I genuinely, I genuinely was looking forward to watching it, and uh, it, it just didn't live up to anything. Like even it's, it's pretty cheesy, but well pieced together trailer made it seem like it was going to be. It seemed like it was going to be an action foray, uh, and it was a lot slower and a lot more tedious than that. Unfortunately, I saw the trailer for it and I decided to skip it. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't look interesting. I'm glad that you decided to take the sword. Or fall on the sword for that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fall on the broken sword. Maybe that's what it meant. Maybe the legend of the broken sworded hero is anybody who reviews this film. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, do you recommend it? Are you telling people to avoid it? Uh, I would say that um, if you 
are well versed in these sort of feudal era kind of looking action movies and you've seen a lot of them you're probably you've probably seen this film before and you've probably seen it done better so it's hard to recommend even to the fans of the genre and i think for the majority of people it's not really worth their time they're not going to get a lot from it but there might be fans i think it kind of it held the air of like b-movie cult status to me right so i think there's it'll probably be a dvd that somebody picks up on a whim and declares it the greatest movie ever uh and Fair enough. If if that's the you know if that catches you that way, absolutely. There, it, it, all I think all these films that I'm going to be talking about today, they all have their fans. It's just hard to figure out which, who, and how many. You know. Oh, that makes sense. So that's uh, Legend of the Broken Sword Hero. Awesome. All right. Uh, the film I'm going to talk about is a film called Mohawk. Mm. Uh, I was actually at the world premiere of Mohawk, um, and the film is directed by uh, Ted Gagan. And it stars uh, Kenny Ito Horn, Ezra Buzzington, Jonathan Hubert, uh, Justin Rain, and Eamon Farron. All right. Well, the general synopsis is this: it's a it's a film that uh, that is set um, just at the end of the War of eighteen twelve, right. uh, the war basically that's going to be between the United States and uh, Great Britain. And this one is set actually in eighteen fourteen, so very much at the end of it. The thing is, is that the the film goes to try to talk about the uh, indigenous peoples that were caught in the mix, basically the eradication uh, of, of, uh, of the Mohawk uh, population culture and how they, you have these two giant colonies that are just basically taking up the land for themselves, not giving a shit about the people that are actually living yeah. there. And so the Mohawk are kind of caught in the middle. The film itself is a low budget revenge film oh. where you'll have this woman called Oak, who basically uh, sees her two lovers murdered and decides, fuck it, I am going to find these bastards and kill them all. It's a pretty good premise. It is. And I think that films like Mohawk are made for film festivals like Fantasia, genre film festivals that are going to be able to take the, I'll say, B-movie aesthetic yeah, right. and really kind of hammer it home. Uh, Kanyeto Horn, she is wonderful. Absolutely stunning Great. as Oak. Um, I can't say that I really enjoyed the film. I understand that it's a, a small film with a really big message on how uh, the indigenous peoples of the United States and Canada haven't gotten their due. And so I think it's... It, I would like to see more films in this vein probably a little bit better directed in my opinion sure a lot of this is shot with close-ups uh medium shots there are no establishing shots in the film almost at all um it does play as a hallucination at one point because um there is a lot of murder you know you'll see it on screen but the thing is is that you could actually make a case for it to actually being a, a, a really intense dream sequence mm. but as a film overall the exploitation nature of it the jagged filmmaking uh the really weird editing in the film as well because you kind of get lost because there's no establishing shots so at one point you're like you feel like the, the the forest is so goddamn small because all you see is the camera kind of moving from one angle and you're like <laughs> i feel like they're running in circles which is a weird thing you know not that i recognize trees at one point but there is no real reference as to how they're going to make it out of this. I understand that mm. maybe that was the intention that you'll have the indigenous people knowing these, these forests like the back of their hands. And possibly that's what Gagan is trying to riff on. But as a guy watching the movie, 
I didn't get that. I just got confusion because we're moving from scene to scene to scene. And I understand that we're getting a lot of exposition from the characters. But at the same time, I have no idea why at one point the the the, the American people that are chasing the Mohawk just show up. You know, you feel like the story literally stops at one point just for the bad guys to catch up. And I was oh, like, yeah. what the fuck? You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's like a, there's not a, there's not a great sense of continuity, maybe. But I mean, I can't recommend this to a general audience. I think that this is a very a, a film that's made for a very specific group, very niche. It does have qualities. I enjoy the risks uh, that it took. There is specifically one of the characters that has a weird infection in his eye, and you can see that he's the mad scientist, the guy who has kind of the brains, the geography, and all that stuff. So you have. These, I won't call them horror tropes, but you'll have these B-movie characters that are really over the top, very specific type characters, you know, that, yeah, that are right. going to be interesting because they're going to play into the B-movie aesthetic. You know, the the over-exaggerated specific types of people that you're going to have in those films. And that is interesting. However, I think that there is a better movie in there. Mm. Um, so yeah, overall, I'll recommend this. If you're a person that really, uh, enjoys bare bones, but bare bones done in a very jagged way. And if you're looking for something uh, of a message, if you're looking for a pure action revenge film, possibly this is for you. Uh, it's definitely not a film for me. Am I going to revisit it? I don't think so. Although again, it has its fans. It has its fans. Yeah. I think that's a, the, the better way to put it. So that, that was my take on Mohawk, Ted Gagan's film. Well, that makes sense. Okay. Well, the, uh, the next film I've seen, uh, was the villainess. I am pretty divided on, on the villainess because there's a lot of good stuff here. But very much like The Legend of the Broken Sword Hero, I don't think the form was right. Uh, that's actually a kind of recurring thing with a lot of the films I've seen. I like the okay. concepts, but feature-length films aren't exactly the right format for them. For the villainess, this was interesting because very much like Legend of the Broken Sword Hero, its story was divided very clearly into about four or five episodes. Oh, and it okay. had the air that comes with a serial manga. You know, it's it's very melodramatic. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of over-the-top characterization. And there are some great twists in this story that don't matter in the short amount of time they're trying to cram them all in. There's no depth behind it. There's nothing lying behind the story. It's just a story about this one girl who gets taken in by the shady South, South Korean equivalent of the CIA. Right. And uh, trained into this sort of contract killer, or, or, or sleeper agent even, uh, who then starts, uh, who basically goes on a, a series of long missions to get herself out of that situation. And that's a good premise. And a very straightforward premise for a number of episodes, you know, or uh, you know, a series of manga, you know, those visual comics. It really, it was tedious to see the story start and stop again and get patched together this way in which it, the time frame of it picks up and starts at different points in her life. It, it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense why this was the chosen form because there's a lot of great things here, but it doesn't benefit the medium it's trying, it doesn't benefit from the medium it's trying to tell its story. It could have got a lot more leverage getting a lot more characterization between the main girl, Suke, uh, and and her daughter and her eventual sort of husband character-ish. There's a lot of interesting dynamics here about why you do the shit things you have to do in life. 
that would have been better if we got to really spend time with them. But uh, it, it kind of zooms past those for extra action. And the action is interesting. I mean, it's some of it is in that GoPro Hardcore Henry camera. Yeah, I heard about that. Uh, I'm still not sold on, on the format. I think if I'm going to watch a video game, I want to be playing the video game. I think that that camera is supposed to add immersion to the violence when the bodies are so numerous and you're so close to them. It feels like there's a lot more commentary that could be said if it were a video game where it's you, where it's reflecting on your decisions and not another character's decisions that you're trying to put yourself in the head of. Right. You know, I, I don't see what the camera did other than add spectacle. Hmm. And the spectacle was interesting as an experiment, again, like Hardcore Henry, which was interesting as an experiment. And the story in The Villainess is better than Hardcore Henry, but the story is also as simple and breaks the format, unlike Hardcore Henry, because it's also in third person for almost two-thirds of the film, and only some of the action scenes are in first person. Right. There's interesting concepts, but I feel like it's what they're trying to do is really make a, a spectacle of this soap opera, and the spectacle is confusing as well, so I don't know. It, it, it felt to me like there were a lot of great ideas. I really did like Suke, uh, the main character. I, I thought she was a very strong character. I thought her performance was really good. I think the scenarios she gets caught in are genuinely unnerving, especially towards the end. There's some really good dramatic stuff here that unfortunately doesn't hold up in a feature. You know, it, okay. it, it feels misplaced. But, you know, I think it's definitely going to have its fans. I just don't think... I, I don't think I'm one of them, you really? know? And it's weird because I do like this kind of material generally. I, I like serial manga. I like, I like that kind of straightforward tune in next time element to, you know, your Dragon Ball Z's, your Naruto's and all those kind of things. Uh, and, and this felt like one of those continuing struggles of a, of a hard put upon character as she right. slowly descends into madness. There was a cool element there that I wish was in its proper format so that I could really follow along because here it just felt like we were rushing elements of the story to fit it and jam it into something it just didn't need to be in. All right. Well, I mean, maybe I should try to give it a shot then. I mean, you're saying a lot of good things uh, and maybe that was the way it was supposed to be designed from the get-go. And then they, when they recorded these three, these, I don't know, three, four, five different sections you're talking about, and they decided mm -hmm. to piece them together. Perhaps the idea was first and foremost to to send them out as mini short films or little chapters. Uh, based Very on true. I mean, there's there is a practice of that. Uh, I know in Japan, maybe not so much in South Korea, where this film was made, where they do like particularly for anime, they would get like episodes of a series, right? And combine a number of episodes to create a central narrative. There you go. That's what it feels and then like. Release it as a film. So you know, yeah, there is a practice of that, definitely. Uh, and maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. I, I, I didn't find if this was based on anything, but right. it certainly does feel like a, a selection of series of, of, of episodes jammed together. I think most people do have that issue where that doesn't always work for them. I think yeah, people yeah. still have the same criticism for the for the general practices that they do for this. I would say it's definitely going to be a total hit or a total miss, I think. There for you most go. So, people. 50, so 50. absolutely give it a shot and see if it works for you. I didn't, it didn't work for me, but maybe it, it sounds even remotely up your alley. Uh, you know, it could could win you over. I mean, that action, again, not for me, but spectacle-wise, maybe it works for some other people. Nice. Lots of people loved Hardcore Henry. Cool. All right, so the next film I want to talk about is uh, a, a film that was anticipating um, quite a bit, actually. I thought it was going to be really interesting. 
Uh, and it's My Friend Dahmer, uh, directed by Mark Mayers and starring uh, Ross Lynch and Anne Heche. And My Friend Dahmer is a uh, is based on a graphic novel by Durf, a guy who actually went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer. And so, Jeez. yeah, well, that's the thing, you know. And so for you guys who don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, he's basically, a, he's a serial killer. Uh, and the, the, the entire graphic novel that Durf wrote is Dahmer's life during high school just before he started murdering. And when you think about that premise, what a great... There's so much potential. Exactly. What a great idea. And so I decided that I was going to um, read the entire 240 pages before actually going to see my friend Dahmer. And I think that might have actually tainted my perception of yeah, the film a right. little bit because I liked the overall tone of the film. I thought that the pacing was off. And I think that the writer uh, made some changes to the story that if he hadn't would have made for a more interesting film, uh, there would have been a bit more tension for me come the end of the yeah. film. And one of the main changes that I thought was a little weird, but I understand why they did it. And I mean, Mayers did it and I have to commend him for this is that, the way that Durf tells the story in the graphic novel is a third-person account. It's his perspective on Jeffrey Dahmer. And so there's a lot of voiceover throughout the entire graphic novel where you're reading it from his perspective. The film does changes the perspective. We see it from Dahmer's perspective. We're watching the movie as we'd normally watch movies. This is going to be our perspective on what Dahmer does. The thing is, is that yeah, we right. don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is. And we're getting these bits and parts that kind of look like what were in the graphic novel. But we're not getting that singular voice that Durf had mm. on the subject. Now, the way that Myers, uh, Myers gets around this is by putting Durf in certain sequences. You know, there is the high school character who draws constantly, who and you see the actual drawings that, that Durf did use. And so you can see that that character is basically the guy who's going to write this entire narrative. However, we, yeah. we don't get that. We don't get that perspective. We don't get that this is his retelling of the Dahmer story. We are just witnessing this thing go around. The problem with that is, why should I care? I don't identify with Dahmer in any way. I do identify mm. with a couple of things, you know, the, the bullying that he goes through in school, uh, the antics that he possibly tries to do in order to get attention, to try to fit in. Well, all of those things that are in the graphic novel. But the thing is, is that when you're lacking that singular voice, yeah. it kind of becomes a little disorienting for me. And not only that, when come the end of the film, you start wondering why I give a shit. If you're going in to watch My Friend Dahmer, you might want to re read the graphic novel after as opposed to before like I did. And yeah, right. Get an, get an unfiltered account and then a exactly. filtered account or something the other way around. The problem is, is that, you know, for people that didn't read it, like I said, chances are you're going to get out of the film and be like, why do I give a shit? Why do I give a shit about this? <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't, you're not really yeah, right. attached to anybody. And, and it's, it's hard to... Put an audience in going in, you know who Jeffrey Dahmer is. And so to be able to identify with him as a serial killer, it's not like Norman Bates and Psycho where you're like, you know, you're, you're being imposed in a very interesting way because they take away Janet Lee's character, Marion Crane, from you. Yeah, yeah. You're exactly. going into the movie and you're immediately expecting with this guy to be the serial killer. Exactly. Or Unless you've never heard of him, and then you're wonder you're spending a lot of time watching a kid get bullied and not understanding what it's going for. <laughs> exactly, you're like, okay, well, I, I get that he had a really tough upbringing, 
But what does that, why, how, how does that separate from all of the other stories that I've watched, you know, including like Stranger Things, if you will, you know, when you see these geeks getting bullied, these nerds getting bullied, Dahmer's pastimes might be Why aren't they all, why aren't they all Dahmer? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, there is that aspect, you know, and I, I, I I appreciated that he included the, the, um, Dahmer's homosexuality, the repressed homosexuality that he had at that time, you know, and how it's a very Mm. difficult coming out in that in the in that period in time but he could have really pushed that a little bit harder in my opinion i think that it would have been interesting for that message to be look what happens when you don't allow people to speak about uh, the things that they're living you know so it's about a a young kid that's expressing that's trying to express himself is trying to quell all of these feelings that he has for this jogger that he sees every day you know the fact that he wants to to have a relationship, but he can't have any because he's just constantly keeping this inside. Do I recommend the film? I mean, yeah, I guess you could possibly go see it. The performances are fantastic. I mean, Ross yeah. Lynch, the guy who plays Jeffrey Dahmer, he's great. He's great as Jeffrey Dahmer. I think that he really pulls it off. I think, I think whereas Mohawk was a little bit over the top, I think that Dahmer could have been that. It could have been an over the top account right, where yeah. you're, you're, you're watching it and it's just like burn after reading where you're like, what the fuck? How is this happening? Why don't these people see what's going on? You know? So I think that uh, yeah. by shaping it more as something showing Jeffrey as more of a tragic figure, you fall into cliches that shouldn't have just been the case i think that it could have been a straight up adaptation do it sin city style where you have that voice over the entire time where you're like this is unbelievable that sounds like an awesome film you know or have a very interesting rashomon type take on it you know where you have these different perspectives on Dahmer. like i saw him this way i saw him that way as opposed to having you know the audience just make up their mind of who Dahmer is turn this into a comedy turn it into something that's really worth my time because playing it straight the way it was I'm going to read the graphic novel. Well, that's that's fair. I mean, that's good. That's a good recommendation as well, just to read the graphic novel. Uh, yeah, so uh, the next film I've seen was Most Beautiful Island. Right. It's basically the story of a, a Spanish immigrant living in New York. Essentially, as the plot unfolds, she joins a sort of a seedy underbelly of New York right. in order to make good money. And her descent and her willingness to do that. It's basically a character story. This is a, an interesting one because, again, it doesn't fit the, the medium. Right. I genuinely liked a lot of the concepts in Most Beautiful Island. I think the, the immigrant story is is still a, a, a useful, important one. The story of this descent into desperation of trying to make money and the things you do to make money as an immigrant is a good one. And there's a sort of tense mystery horror element to the whole thing that uh, makes it an, unner- an unnerving watch Okay. for maybe five, ten minutes and then the film keeps going. The uh, the story of her trials and tribulations in New York takes up half the film. It stops being interesting after the first 10-15 minutes when you see enough of her jobs. The other half of the film, and it's pretty much right in the middle where the divide happens, this underground section is tense and weird and creepy for the first 5-10 minutes and has a great payoff, but there's a 20 minute gap where a lot of nothing is happening. Oh. And there's only so many times you can be told something's tense before you stop giving a shit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, the concepts, though, were really good. And, and the thing is, I think this should have been, instead of an hour and a half film or an hour 20 minute film, this should have been a pilot to an ongoing mystery horror TV show. Oh, nice. It should have been 10, 15 minutes of her tough life and 10, 15 minutes of her first foray into this underground. Because it's weird the way it sets it up. There's so many side characters there's so many elements to the underground 
that it feels like the story is only being half told. The uh, right. the other characters could easily become a, re- a recurring cast that you get grow attached to, and they all face the possibility that maybe they'll die. There's this hierarchy of who runs the underground, which at the very end we kind of see an element that maybe she might start to climb it. Uh, the, the main character, maybe she might start to climb that ladder, mm-hmm. which is fascinating and interesting. And the, the coldness with which she's able to do so, it makes for a really, a really interesting watch when you're at the points that are interesting. I would say... The film itself, it doesn't work very specifically in this format, but even the mystery element has enough in it to be like something of a like a Netflix show for like eight episode seasons, you know, something that generally keeps you pulling you along to see what she's going to encounter next. And maybe you'll start to see the other characters. They don't really like each other anyway, but you'll see you'll start to get attached more to the other characters who seem warmer and maybe generally more sympathetic whereas for this character she's not sympathetic she is she's very cold and, and very distant if i had never seen this film and just seen it show up on tv one day you know most beautiful island it's got a cool name it's got a cool idea it's got a cool you know mostly female driven cast I, I could i could see this absolutely on tv any day and there's a lot to to make of this right and i would say that on that basis, I, I really would look forward to either seeing more from these from these uh, you know artists or seeing the same story repackaged. Absolutely, cool. You know what? But you sold it to me anyway. That's the weird thing because I'm interested in the character, the woman that you just described. I'm like, I want to see what who who she is. I want to understand who she is. Sometimes that's enough for me to get me into a movie where I was like, you know what? I like this character. Maybe that's interesting. Very cool. So next film uh, for me was. Uh, Briggs Be Bear, directed by Dave McCary and stars Kyle Mooney, Mark Hamill, Claire Danes, and Greg Kinnear, um, amongst others. Um, that is a big cast. I, I'm going to tell you in one of these films, the one name I recognize. Oh, there's two names I recognize from all seven films that I watched. There's not even remotely a name as big as any of the names in that film. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Mark Hamill, Claire Danes, and Greg Kinnear. Jesus Christ. Oh, he's, he's <laughs> really good in the film, too. So I'll just... This is a, this is a complicated story. So I'm going to give you kind of a synopsis. Uh, spoiler alert for the whole thing that I'm going to be talking about in terms of Briggs Beer. If you haven't seen it and you want to see it, uh, okay, maybe just fast forward a little bit. But I'm going to get into spoilers. So you've been warned. Uh, the film is about a guy who's called James... Um, who, unbeknownst to me while I was walking in because I avoided everything, was uh, kidnapped as a kid. I thought this film was uh, uh, going to be a post-apocalyptic type film where you have these people living underground and shit like that. But no, that's in the first 10 minutes of the movie. And it's about a kid who is, uh, a guy who was kidnapped as a kid, but he only finds out later that the world he lives in was made up by the people who Mm. kidnapped him. It's like a twisted Truman show without the audience. Uh, But while he's kidnapped, you know, his abductor, who turns out to be Mark Hamill, he's the the guy who kidnaps James. Uh, He was directing episodes of Brigsby Bear, a kid's show that James really loves and is obsessed with. Now, the police find the whereabouts of of the kid. They arrest the kidnappers and James returns to his family. Now, I think, uh, I don't remember the amount of years he was gone, but I mean, he doesn't remember the time where he had another family. So it was at a very, very young age where he was kidnapped by mm. Mark Hamill and his wife. James, because Mark Hamill and his wife didn't do anything to James, they treated him as as uh, as their own son he had a really good upbringing the only thing is is that he was in a world that didn't exist yeah right he's unaffected by this and he doesn't feel like anything was done to him and 
all he wants to do is continue watching Brigsby Bear because it, it kind of ends on a cliffhanger and he wants to know where the hell that show's going to go. <laughs> um, the fun thing about it, I mean, it, one of his friends, one of the guys he meets uh, who happens to be one of his real sister's friends, puts the show online, Brigsby Bear, and it becomes an instant hit. And so James recruits his friends, you know, to come make the film with him. I really liked this film a lot, but I was a little perplexed by it as well. <laughs> Because you seem it, you sound it. <laughs> it's just, um, I think it's a strange little film. It harps on nostalgia culture, uh, you know, the nature of collecting and geek obsession, you know, Q mm. casting Mark Hamill. <laughs> you know, if, if you have the epitome yeah, of yeah, geek culture in your own film. It talks about alternative realities as well. I also thought it was interesting to have that communal experience and how best manner to treat a so-called victim is to give them exactly what they want. But that's where I was a little bit sketchy on the idea of kidnapping and treating it in that manner. You know, the fact that you're treating it innocently. I was a little bit weirded out by having... You know, people are trying to treat James as a victim. That's where Claire Danes, she comes in as a social worker, as a psychologist. And she's trying to say, what they did to you is terrible. And Greg Kinnear Mm -hmm. is a cop who's basically saying, what these people have done to you is terrible. This is your real family. And so you'll have this entire victimization that comes from the real world. Whereas James doesn't feel like anything has been done to him. He just wants to continue living in that Brigsby Bear type thing where a lot of people would say that you'll associate a little bit more with your captors. You have that whole Stockholm syndrome aspect that comes into it. I I don't know how I feel about the way they treated that whole kidnapping thing. I'm a little bit on the fence with it and I treated it so innocently. I felt that I couldn't get past that initial incoherence, you know, but I feel like because it's like in a comic book where you'd consider like this to be a dramatic shift in tone, it would be on par for the series where you're like, oh, that came out of left field. Where you're like, well, I agree with that because it's it's kind of okay because it's part of geek culture. It's part of that that the coherence, that collective coherence that they have as a community. Um, right. So I mean, it's it is a heartfelt film, and I it's definitely something that I'm going to say, go ahead and watch it. You know, because yeah, I, I, it sounds fascinating. It is, but to me, the, it's it's reliance on over-sentimentality and nostalgia might be a detractor for some of them. And, yeah. and it's a really funny film. Great performances all around. So that's that's just the, the, the little part that I thought was like, oh, we'll just brush over the kidnapping thing. I, I, I think it, it could have been a, another choice. It's just my little thing with the movie. Yeah, I mean, to me, it sounds like a lot like it's trying to get at the mentality of people at being raised by their parents, you know, like the sense that it doesn't really matter who your parents are. The point is that whoever teaches you leads you with with that base level of what you seem to understand about the world. Right. And then it's almost impossible to convince you otherwise. Yeah. So, you know, when people, you know, you come from like maybe a religious background or a political background. Well, that's the thing. You know, I like that aspect. Yeah. I mean, that you're, you're, you're unshakable in that thing. And in fact, you double down when questioned and, and you'll not see it as an issue. There's a lot about that. I think that's interesting what you're saying, though, about how nostalgia distracts from it, uh, because it does sound somewhat at odds with the story, that, with that sentiment. Exactly. But I, I, you know, this is me. I'm flat out speculating at this point because I haven't seen it. <laughs> but I mean, I wholeheartedly recommend it because I am a guy, I'm a romantic at heart, and I will recommend Brigsby Barrett as a beautiful film. But that little thing fucked with me. Yeah, so, okay, next film I've seen was called Tilt. Uh, it's an American film. It's a horror film, right? Uh, kind of. I don't know. It's more like a kind of thriller, I guess. But there are definitely horror elements in it. Generally, so the story is, a documentary maker has has now sort of benefited enough off his first success to go and say, it's time to make a second documentary. And he's he's piecing together a, a work about 
a sort of de- decrying of the golden age of America. Right. Meanwhile, though, he's doing this while unemployed on, under the benefits of his wife, who's now pregnant. And uh, that sort of pressure starts mounting on him, on top of which Trump has just been elected, you know, president. Okay. And between his home crisis-ish and his, the political crisis of America at the time, his dedication to the documentary starts to kind of feed into his degrading mentality as such. The way I look at it, I, I've termed it the white unpower fantasy. Okay. You get this idea where, you know, what like a white power fantasy, it plays up to like, maybe the best idea of a white power fantasy is something like, uh, like Wall Street films, right. where uh, it's all about sort of control and power of America and how these white guys sort of basically call the shots and battle it out for supremacy over right. the, over the public, over the people or, or whatever. This is like the antithesis of that. It's the fear <laughs> of it. Okay. It's um it's this guy who kind of revels in how shitty the world is starting to get. Ooh. It's it's kind of like a natural progression of what happens when a person who deems themselves an intellectual will inevitably break under this set of circumstances when the world starts to get more and more chaotic. So it was a very interesting film, and it's a well-made film, and it's well-acted. For me, it's got two elements, one that I really like and one that I'm a bit iffier about. All right. The... the the, I'll go for the iffy one is that it's very much a decrying of what I think the director perceives as the nature of the people who voted for Trump, mm-hmm. uh, as well as a sort of ultimate game where do you end up as one of the people saying, wake up, what the fuck's going on? How did you let this happen? You know, right. do I think it's a bit much? Yes, I think it's uh, that's what I mean by unpower fantasy. Right. It's reveling in the idea you can do nothing you know, and that there really is a, a point where these kinds of people are just going to be absolutely zoned out and destroyed by this new world. Right. And I think there are tail ends of ambiguity in the story. I think the fact that he's unemployed is maybe the biggest one, you know, like maybe we're not supposed to be on this guy's side anyway, and that it's, maybe it's the decrying of this person as no help either. Right. I think that's interesting. It makes for an interesting discussion on that side of things, but I don't think it goes nearly as far as the sort of reveling in what this character's perspective is when everybody else is a inane asshole trying to make him feel shit. It feels like we're supposed to sympathize with him on some level. Right. And it revels in this depressive, ultimate, fatalistic outlook on society and these people in society. And I think that's a bit much. I don't think it's going to really help anybody to revel in something as depressing as that. Mm -hmm. But as a character study, I think it was really interesting. I think this guy uh, absolutely shows the signs of an unrepentant intellectual who society is never going to grasp because he doesn't cater to them in any way. Uh, And I think those people are going to find themselves having a hard time in reality because if you want to change something, you have to meet people halfway. You can't lecture them. And this guy is a bit of a lecturer, Okay. More importantly, I, I love that it sets him up as totally futile. Right. It gives us a snapshot of his previous documentary, Tilt, and in it he embarks on the, the theories of chaos in relation to pinball, and he's playing this pinball table, and he's like, chaos works like this, you know, it's total random, it's chance, and you're just trying to, you're, you're a bunch of flippers hitting a ball as it's constantly sliding towards entropy. And, you know, and I think that's, well, that's a great way that's to put really it. a really good uh, visual metaphor there, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is that he's banging this table and he, in his own documentary, and he just totally fucks up playing pinball. Uh, and he, he's kind of like, oh, shit, shit. 
cut, cut this, cut this from the documentary. And I was like, wow, that is great characterization. In a chaotic world, he is beyond useless. You know, I think that's <laughs> a, a great, uh, that, that's a great, idea on how to how to represent this character right i just think that the horror elements are a little much and i just don't think it it fears from telling a, a really interesting story when it when it gives him more agency or power towards the end right i i don't know if that benefits the same story we were being told before that but there's so many interesting things about how he portrays this character and how it's visually set up, why this guy starts to act so crazy. Right. There's lots of interesting stuff there in Tilt. It's maybe just not a perfect film, but I, I, I think it's it's interesting. I think people should definitely give it a shot and see if it registers something with them. Awesome. Cool. That did sound fun, man. Uh, I, I actually might check it out. I think that just the pinball thing sold me. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Yeah, great. I mean, that was, that's my favorite part. It was like, oh, that's just that's just neat. <laughs> oh, cool. All right, the next film that I saw was Shin Godzilla, directed by Hideki Anno and Shinji Higuchi. I really liked this film. I, I really, really thought it was fun. A fun political satire and an allegory about you know, the, the, the events that happened in Japan in 2011, you know, the, the earthquake, the tsunami that led to the Fukushima nuclear meltdown. Yeah, um, that's right. Now, now that's not the fun part, obviously. That's the terrible part of the film. Uh, but, I all, but I mean, like, the allegory and the political satire is really where this film stands out. And it's weird because it's also a coming-of-age story for Godzilla of sorts because this isn't your traditional Godzilla film in the sense that Godzilla goes – you know, he goes through three different stages or three different phases depending mm. on the act we're in. And it was weird because I remember when I was sitting in the uh, in the audience watching this, I was like, is this what the fucking Godzilla looks like? That's terrible. He looks like a rubber dinosaur, you know, just a really <laughs> terrible CGI rubber dinosaur. But as the film goes on, he literally starts growing into the Godzilla. Uh, that you, and I, and I mean, so if you're sitting there in the audience, just wait. Wait, because you will be rewarded for sitting through the first act. The first act itself really makes fun of the shortcomings of uh, bureaucracy, you know, the people in power. Godzilla's coming towards the city and it, it yeah. creates that giant tsunami. And they're not, you know, the, the politicians aren't doing anything about it. They're sitting in committees discussing things and then the, you start realizing <laughs> that they're not going to act. They're actually fearing for their own jobs. They're uh, not taking care of the population. They're saying, well, if I take care of this matter, then that person's going to have this shit on me. So I can't wow. really do anything about that because I don't want to lose uh, when the next election comes up, then that person's going to be able to use that against me in the, in the, in the campaign. And, and it was really, really interesting because I have a feeling that they're not wrong. And it was Absolutely. really, really, really interesting because it plays heavily on the fact that the U S only gets involved in matters once it can take advantage of you politically. And that was really, really cool because it shows that even, you know, it shows that that shoot first, ask questions later aspect of yeah. the U.S. where they're like, well, we're going to lean on you guys here. If you guys want our help, you know, clearly we're going to need this from you, this from you. And also we're going to have to test our latest weapons on your giant dinosaur because, you know, we want to see what it does. Wow. And so... And yeah, I'm sure that doesn't work out. I'm <laughs> well, that's the thing. You see, the U.S. are always in a position where they're they're shown as failures, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And it was really fun because that's also a comment most likely on, like, this is Japan owning their Godzilla. This version of the monster is probably my favorite because when shit hits the fan... 
it fucking hits the fucking fan. It is insane what this goddamn monster can do. This is the best goddamn dinosaur I've ever seen on screen. Awesome. And I love the pacing of the film. Uh, It's intense. It's relentless from beginning to end. The... It's so tight in the first act, you know, the conversations between people, the way that it's set up is is comedy punchline, comedy punchline, you know, junk punchline, joke punchline. Everything is going very, very well to the point where you're like, these people are fucking morons and they're the ones <laughs> running things. And it's really, really great. Then it turns to tragedy. When you when you really see the effects that Godzilla have had, you know, that you know, when you when you're talking about the true events that that inspired this iteration of Godzilla, the 2011, uh, you know, tsunami, earthquake, and, and the nuclear meltdown. You're like, whoa, okay. It takes on proportions where you no longer want to laugh. Uh, I mean, I was with a yeah, crowd that right. actually cheered when they saw Godzilla, and I think that that's what you want because uh, if you're a Japanese audience and you're seeing this monster, there's some sort of catharsis through that destruction. You know, the idea that you're going to yeah, be able to right. say. We can get it out finally. This is how we can express ourselves. But the sheer amount of violence that there is on screen at that point can be a little overwhelming in my opinion. But it Mm -hmm. is glorious. So you're stuck with that dichotomy throughout the entire second half of the film where you're like, this is awesome. But not the real thing. This is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have to remember that it's... also terrible. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And so I really think that it's it's really cool to play uh, up that tragedy in in a sense where you're you're like okay I understand the devastation much more. They're not glorifying yeah. it in any way, but they're showing you the the true nature of what happened. It's not as serious as Gareth Edwards' uh, film from 2014. It really is a fantastic piece of movie making. I can't recommend it enough. Shin Godzilla, absolutely. Fantastic. I'd say, you know what? It actually, uh, it comes here, I think, in like a week or two. Okay. Uh, which is really frustrating because I wanted to, it was like, oh, there's got to be a way for me to see it so we can talk about it on the fucking show. Right. Because uh, it, it does. It sounds amazing. But, um, oh, well. Like I said, I mean, <laughs> that if you... Seems like a good, seems like a great summary anyway. That'll do. Yeah. If you, if, you, if, you can, if you can go check it out, go. Like I said, don't let the first act monster get get you down because when i saw it i was like really it gets better it gets so much better and he is really the true star awesome uh right uh yeah so next one i have is better watch out right now this is a weird one essentially it's a christmas themed horror film kind of spoiling one of the main twists at the very start of the film just to give you the premise big spoiler spoiler alert yeah yeah spoiler alert you want to skip that go ahead uh so basically the film was about uh, a, a boy, he's played by Levi Miller, uh, who was in Pan, and yeah, I'm sure yeah. in a couple of other films. Uh, yeah, and he is this, he's this teenager who lives in a kind of rich, nice neighborhood during Christmas, and his parents go out to a gala, and his babysitter's over for the night. And he's got a, a big crush on his babysitter. Tonight's the night, now or never. But she's like five, six years older than him. It's not, it's looking like it's not going to work out. It sets up this sort of premise that it's going to be the two of them alone. And essentially what starts happening, creepy, creepily, it looks like there's someone who's breaking into the house. And so you're kind of getting this idea, maybe it's going to be uh, like a home alone it's it's really not. What happens is, very early on in the film, it turns out Levi Miller is essentially an evil mastermind who keeps the babysitter hostage, essentially to try and convince her to fall in love with him. Uh, and it's really about how monstrous this boy is. Now, I mean, it's an interesting movie. 
definitely exploitation horror. It starts out like an assault on Precinct 13 vibe, and then it moves to Saw or something like that, you know, okay. for hostages. And the general premise is interesting. It's good. And there are interesting things said. I mean, it has this like debunking of like the gentleman slash chivalrous nature. That creepy element that guys keep using to try and like, I am the perfect gentleman for her. What doesn't a woman want if not that? That's creepy. That's weird. It shows a lack of understanding of how, what the woman wants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the film does a really good job of exploring that. It also that exploration of pre-adolescent and early adolescent uh, lust to the nth degree, you know. Right. If in the mind of a of a maniac, how would he act this out? I guess. <laughs> you know, okay. it's 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 uh, it's 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 a bit of a grasp, but it's definitely there, and it's interesting enough. But it's uh, the issue is it's it's a little wacky. Also, it's nowhere near as fun as it should be. It actually, it's really disappointing because the initial premise, if that was given a B movie rating, that sounds actually pretty entertaining. You know, that sounds pretty violent, and, and it'd yeah, be interesting absolutely. to see Home Alone with real. And there's one segment where they outright do a a bit from Home Alone, and it does lead to violence. <laughs> And that's probably the best bit in the film. Okay. But for the most part, it's this story about this girl tied to a chair trying to escape. And I get it. There's there's a place for those kind of stories, but it doesn't have enough to fill its runtime. Oh, okay. And it's not much more than a pretty short film. You know, it's, it's maybe 40 minutes, I'd say, Oof. of good stuff. And a lot of filler. What it does with that idea is interesting, but not enough to justify the film. Right. Also, I, Pat- Patrick Warburton was in it for about five minutes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I remember seeing it. I was like, really? Warburton's there? That's amazing. And they only, he's only there five minutes? Jesus. Okay. Literally, yeah. He leaves at the very start of the film and oh, then comes, fuck. comes back at, <laughs> at the very end. It's really like a name only appearance. <laughs> yeah, it seems that way. I think people who like the exploitation genre i imagine it's going to be a good step in a direction of this is a christmas film for weirdos and that's good there needs to be more of that kind of thing i just think that there's going to be a better example down the line if we hold out for it right this is a good stepping stone but ultimately it it doesn't go far enough in either being fun or exploitative enough to really push me one way or another. Okay. All right, next film, next film, next film is uh, A Ghost Story, uh, directed by David Lowry, starring Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck. And uh, everybody knows already, A Ghost Story is about a man who dies and his ghost returns to live in the house he shared with his wife. I've written a review, so I'm not going to go in depth on this. If you guys want to know what my real thoughts are, go read that. Uh, I will recommend this 100%. Uh, it is one of the best films of the year. I loved it. Great. This movie is is unlike anything you've ever seen before. A lot of people were comparing it to uh, Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. And I, to them, I say, fuck you. It's got a ghost. It's yeah, Well, I think that's what it is. There's a, there's actually um, uh, a movie theater here in Quebec City that say that, oh, it shares some 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 similarities. Now, it's like, you guys have international films come to your place every week and you fucking dare compare this. No, it's really, really, really interesting because the film is challenging you to look at yourself as opposed to what it's actually trying to say. And that is something wonderful and not very many films do. So a ghost story, if you really want to see what I had to say about it, go read the review on Big Picture Reviews. I can put the link in the show notes here. I, I, I won't say any more. I want you guys to go out and see it. I want, Like I said in the review, I want you to love it. I want you to dislike it. But I want you to see it and talk about it because that's exactly yeah. what this film is meant to do. Super, yeah, I'm super excited to see Ghost Story. I have a 
I pressed past to see it a little early from its oh, UK right. release. Oh, yeah, nice. Uh, so I am really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, we were supposed to actually do it on the show, and we're actually debating whether or not we should. So we'll, we'll keep you guys posted whether or not we're going to be doing it. So many people are going to be doing it, so maybe we'll skip it. We'll see what we want to do. Uh, yeah, so uh, last film before we talk about uh, Super Dark Times is a film called A Taxi Driver. Yep. It's another South Korean film, and probably the one I liked the most from the screeners i mean i did really like I, i'd say it's kind of on par with super dark times for me because uh i have issues with both of them but i at the same time i issues, really enjoyed period. the experience <laughs> <laughs> shut up <laughs> it's about this taxi driver who works in seoul and in, in south korea uh he's this kind of bitter guy politically he's passive He's aggressive to people. He just seems a bit hard done by. He looks after his daughter, he doesn't have, whose mother has passed on. A, a bit of a, a cheapskate, uh, a bit of a sneaky guy, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's played quite humorously. He's, he's, it's pretty funny, his little exploits. And that sort of opens the film, him just sort of getting about his day, being a bit of a shady character. Right. <laughs> so what happens is he hears about a job that basically pays exactly the right amount to cover the rent that he's due. And... He hears it in the taxi depot over from another guy. And so pursues to steal that guy's job to get in on it. That job ultimately is transporting a, a German reporter from Seoul into the city of Guangzhou. And this happens to be set in the, uh, the center of 1980 during something called the Guangzhou Uprising. Okay. Which was this big political overthrow of the dictatorship at the time in South Korea. Right. So it's 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 fascinating for its historical context. It's actually it's funny because it reminded me of Dunkirk a little. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because it's very much this sort of fictional interpretation of the events. Except in this time it's more of a tour of the happenings of the events. And the and the story is pretty simple from there. It's very much about trying to, this guy and his debate with his involvement in this moment. Meanwhile, this German reporter is, they become this sort of odd couple as this German reporter is very sturdy and certain that there's something shady going on. He has to capture it for the moral good of the people in this town. And they're both based on real people, apparently. This really happened, the uh, this taxi driver and this reporter. Oh, nice. Uh, I would say it's a fascinating film because it's very accessible, maybe to a fault. Right. What does is set up a comedic tone at first and then dethrones that. That's great because it set me in the mood and the mindset for something that was going to be like a bit of a wacky adventure. Right. And it gets somber as shit. It's a horrible event. It's It looks horrible. The violence is shocking uh, and they keep it in, you know, the, these civilians getting mowed down. It's not like real footage, but it's reenacted. And it is harrowing. Wow. It definitely sold me on, like, like I have to read into this. What the fuck is happening here, you know? I was definitely put in that mindset, which I think is easily the most important thing the movie can get across. If you got an interest in the political idealisms of other countries and start to broaden your horizons in that sense, it's done its job for a Western audience, at least. Excellent. At the same time, it's also quite relevant today. I mean, as uh, political parties maybe in America and, and here in the UK are being overthrown or fighting for control. Yeah. And ultimately, everybody is sort of the community started to get divided on issues. There's this great emphasis on the the role of media and how they falsely portray these events, uh, wow. and 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 the difficulty of not buying everything that you read was exactly what South Korea went through in the 1980s. These people had been fed lies about what was happening in Guangzhou. And okay. a lot of people it gives you a lot of scenes where uh, the taxi driver, Mr. Kim, is back in Seoul and 
he's seen a lot of the drama. He's trying to mull it over in his head, like what to make of it. And these people in a bar are talking about it and they're being, they're watching the news and it's like, today more protesters violently assaulted well-meaning soldiers, you know, and it's, it's that kind of shit. The people at the bar are like, that's terrible. I mean, I can't believe it. And it's like, you know, that the, the benefit of, you know, insider knowledge. Right. How you start to see the world differently. Right, 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 uh, right. It captures that so well, like Jesus, really well. Like great, man. I can't wait to watch this. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the difficulties with the film is that although it loses the comedic tone, there's something very cartoonish about the villains in this film. Okay. Which there are. It's not like a, a faceless thing like Dunkirk. There's this head of uh, some sort of militia uh, and he kind of keeps appearing in the film with these characters. They should be miles away from each other. There should be nothing between any of them oh, personally. okay, yeah. But this guy seems to start to get like a vendetta for the taxi driver and the reporter and get the symbolism involved. Obviously, it's supposed to stand for something. Oh, yeah. The political parties, the same way as Trump going yeah, after absolutely. the media now, fake news and all that bullshit. So they're trying to track them down. Makes sense. Absolutely. And uh, that attempt to liven the film with those like actions, there's like a car chase scene in it. Oh, okay. And there's like a, a, like a Mexican standoff kind of scene right. at one point. Just the action beats the way the audience up yeah exactly and i get that that's critical fiction that's how it works you have to see familiar beats to take in unfamiliar beats right that's, right right i mean it's something that's not going to be for everyone i don't think it's a perfect film but i would say it does just a great job of imparting that information keeping the story relatively entertaining to watch at the same time and i i genuinely like the characters you grow attached to the taxi driver you grow attached to the reporter and the some of the somber moments genuinely hit me. I was very shocked to find that I was getting really teary about this film. It was just thinking about it. It's, it's awful, awful what happened. Uh, so, I mean, it's absolutely, if you can see a taxi driver, if it comes anywhere near you, you should definitely watch it. It's Give it a shot. See if you, I mean, it's subtitled. Obviously, that's going to be a entry bar issue for the masses. But it's something that is relevant today, even if it doesn't at first appear it by the humorous outset of the film. Right. It definitely does have a lot of a, a really important agenda that I think is really interesting and well handled, if not stylistically or perfectly done. Excellent. Can't wait to see that. A, a, a taxi driver, so I'm looking forward to that. All right, so that makes up for our first part of the show. We're actually going to take a little break right now. We're going to play the trailer for Super Dark Times, and we're going to come talk about this. I'll call it a thriller, in a sense. This high school thriller. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd say thriller. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, so we'll be back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Hi, I'm David Hart, host of Pop Culture Case Study, a podcast that analyzes film from a psychological angle. On Thursdays, we take a look at an older movie, pick a theme, and then apply the research that has been in the psychological field to it. Then on Monday, we tie all of that to a new release. Lastly, there's a section of the show called Fangirl Fixation, dedicated to my wife Britt's ongoing film education. We discuss older films that she's recently seen, as well as the upcoming releases for that week. You can find Pop Culture Case Study on your podcast player of choice, and I will be there as always, diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Guys, my parents rented that movie, True Lies. I've watched that scene where she strips over and over and over. Silver Surfer is the loneliest dude in the galaxy. I mean, the Punisher is pretty haunted. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Allison Bannister. Would you? I don't know. I like her. Yeah, I like her too. He's got a thing for me. I like you, Zach. She's hot! Like Charlie's sister! Shut up. 
from his mom. Guess he never came home last night. Did you see him at school today? Are you okay? There's just a lot going on right now. Josh? We should go back. What? I don't know, but I just keep thinking of his mom. Don't go back there. You need to listen to no, me. No, you need to listen to yourself. You're scared all the time. If anyone asks, we're not friends. Okay, so welcome back. We hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for Super Dark Times, a film that's written by Luke Petrowski and Ben Collins, directed by Kevin Phillips, starring Owen Campbell, Charlie Tayen, Elizabeth Cappuccino, and Max Talisman. The, the reason why we separated it this way, uh, we, we decided to take Super Dark Times uh, on its own because, first of all, it's the only movie that we actually saw in common, but at the same time, when we discussed the order in which we were going to discuss these films, uh, Lee and I really started talking about super dark times and the conversation was going on and on and on and we realized okay let's cut it there let's have the conversation on air we don't have any notes we didn't do any research or anything like that no. so this is gonna be a flat-out conversation about a film that well i'll ask lee if he enjoyed it first and then we'll get to what i thought sure. so lee, let's start with you okay now we can head into it yeah uh, okay so yeah I, I liked super dark times i was impressed by mainly the characters of the film but i think we'll, we'll talk a bit about what the actual plot is uh Go ahead. so super dark times follows a character called sack and his friends josh daryl allison and there's another there's another guy Charlie. Charlie. Yeah, that's the one. He's like a cousin of Daryl or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, this is set in the 90s, by the way. Yeah, set in the 90s. Uh, and it's established that Zach and Josh are sort of closer friends. They like to sort of, they're kind of nerds. They keep themselves in the basement. They look up, or they fantasize about girls in their year. They, they look at porn oh, yeah, and shit right. together. It's, there's this great, like, humorous tone to it all. You know, the, the playful nature of these guys. They, they swear at each other, like, nonstop. Uh, and they, they're kind of like... Especially Daryl. Yeah, uh, Daryl especially. Uh, he's, he's fucking unhinged. <laughs> It's fucking brilliant. Uh, and these guys, they, they feel very real to me, at least. Uh, but these characters, they're really, they, they hang out with each other, just passing time. They go to the shop and, like, dare each other to eat shitty food. And one day, basically, yeah. they go to Josh's house and take, uh, like, a ninja sword, a fucking samurai sword. It's a, yeah, it's a katana. Yeah, a katana. So, yeah, so they, they take the sword and they're fucking around cutting things in half in, in a field and one thing leads to another Daryl ends up getting killed <laughs> and yeah. like that's, that's kind of the setup from there it's very much this sort of tense exploration of these characters how they react after the death what they do to try to hide the evidence and what happens to their relationships in school out of school after this has happened the comedic factor fades away and it becomes far more distorted and unnerving from that point onwards and you can definitely see there you could call them horror elements but as jason said thriller is probably the best way to put it they're definitely they're not scary they're just 
It's tense. I really like the film. I love the characters especially. I think that's the most important thing. The film would be nothing without these characters. These characters yeah. are great. They um they feel very real. I feel like I know them all. The guy Daryl, he's this he's sort of this he's a hard guy to like. He's very pushy. He's very demanding of his friends. Uh, he's he comes from a bad background essentially, and it, it makes him hard to relate to. And he, he doesn't carry himself well in a sort of social circle. I I know guys like that all the time, and I was very much in like Zach's position in that, where he's kind of apologizing on the behalf of him to keep him in the group. I, I've I've been in that position before. I know what it's kind of like where you like a guy, but it doesn't fit with other groups. It's it's it's, it's a hard deal, you know? Josh, this this kind of sarcastic, angry kid who, mm-hmm. um, again, very relatable and he's likable in his sarcastic way. And there's this conflict between him and Daryl. It's so many of these elements that can remind you of someone. So many of them, it feels like they could have been you under a different light, you know? There's lots of yeah. that. Sack is this, is this well-meaning kid, peacekeeper of the group. And then, you know, there's side characters, Allison. She's, she's sort of... Sort of the love interest, this very cool girl, very like chill, very mature compared to all the boys. It's funny in that yeah. sense. To me, the cast is great and the performances are wonderful. It's the drama that's very interesting. And I, for me, what I saw it as was this sort of undertaking of this sort of adolescent distortion of what happens when an event pulls friends apart and how people react to that and deal with that under the perspective that maybe it's just not meant to be. And it's very symbolic of what happens to relationships as you get older eventually some of them are going to fade away some of them are severed horribly and some of them you try to salvage and in between that there's a violent mystery story that to me (laughs) i i like the elements of it but to me it didn't go the direction i would have thought was most interesting I think it right. went an interesting direction. It definitely surprised me by the end. But the direction they take, I feel, almost misses some of the harder-to-tell storytelling elements about difficulties in who's to blame, quote-unquote, when it comes to these relationships falling apart and and, and responsibility that you ob- have to take on from those, from those perspectives. Once things start falling apart, who... Do you become? And right. I feel the decision they make at the end makes it seem like it's clearly someone's fault and you were right to never question yourself. Hmm. And that to me is weird because it seems like everybody's in the wrong. In a real scenario, everybody would be in the wrong. And in this scenario, it's set up that everybody's in the wrong. You know, right. these things aren't just, they don't just happen because one guy is an asshole. Ultimately, other things pull people apart. That's just how it works. One guy might be an instigator, but people's friendships in this age group fall apart for a myriad of reasons, usually due to incompatibility. And in this case, I feel like that that side of the story is dropped for far more conventional story about adolescence that I think still might work. I think Jason probably takes up that angle a little better, but it's not the story that I thought was more interesting that the story sidesteps and goes somewhere else with it which is fine it doesn't ruin the film it's just not as difficult to tell or as interesting to me as the story that i thought it was going to tell i suppose i okay i understand everything that you're saying right now okay this is gonna be a fun one because to me and this is not me criticizing you in any way i choose to see this film as a very metaphorical film I sure. don't see it as... I'm not taking everything that I've seen at face value. Mm. 
you know, you know, we were talking about, and then, like I said, now if spoilers, okay, we'll, we'll put like in the notes where you guys can come back in where we're not talking about spoilers, we're talking about performance and general impressions for the film and all that. But this is going to talk spoilers because I want to talk with Lee. Yeah. You're here. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't think those murders occur. I don't yeah. think those murders occur in the film. We were talking about this off air. I don't think those murders occur. I, I think that the film is uh, about the extremes during adolescence it's about sexual tension camaraderie masculinity uh, owning up to your uh, femininity that you know you're getting older Mm -hmm. Uh, the haunting nature of life altering events it's about making choices it's about losing your virginity it's how everyone that surrounds you that's an adult hides you from the truth whether it be people moving away suicide you know drugs everything that's in there to me makes this really interesting high school film where if i was 16 years old i would see this film and i'd say someone understands me yeah right Mm -hmm. Uh, someone understands me and so you know even when we're talking about the katana and all those things there is so much phallic imagery in the film that i noticed that i was like they're clearly showing the sexual tension that these guys not only are feeling towards each other you know whether they're dealing with some sort of homosexuality but also their feelings towards girls in general Mm -hmm. and i thought it was really interesting because that passing around of the katana is and it's weird because it it could actually double down as a masturbation scene yeah because when you read about like when guys start learning about masturbation they tend to do it in groups but the thing is is that that to me was really symbolic i was like look at that that's shit that i've read about where i'm like this is their this is their weird masturbation scene and there's also the the um the bullied overweight guy in Mm -hmm. daryl that i thought was really uh, i found myself getting attached to him so much that when he dies or when he goes away i should say because i don't really believe he's dead when he goes away uh, i i felt a little sad because i i I kind of identified with him because i grew up overweight when i was a kid and i used to get bullied for that as a result Mm -hmm. and i used to do things in order to get people to like me the way Daryl does. He swears all the time. He's the first one that wants to smoke weed. He's the one that's always challenging because he's always the guy that's being pushed around. He's the guy that doesn't get the respect, putting him over the top and all that. Uh I also identify it with Josh. Josh, who's this this guy, we don't necessarily see uh, much of him, but we have that friend, that one guy that's always a a little bit reserved but he knows the ins and outs of his own house. But when he goes out into society, he can't really figure out where he belongs. Yeah. It's a good thing he has a guy like Zach who's a really good guy that seems to be a little bit less unhinged. Mm-hmm. You know, to actually have as a model, these guys are really, really, really good friends. And we all have that one guy in our lives that's always been a little bit stranger. I think that the the experience that they have, you know, that, that bridge that they cross at the beginning of the film is really representative of the choices that you make. You know, you see Josh that stands up on the side of that bridge. That's him making a choice is he going to stand above these people is he going to be part of the group is he always going to be a part like separate you know from the group Uh you know and he's looking down on this and you can see that it's a constant evaluation of not only where he fits in with these people but who he is as an individual is he going to rise up to this challenges the choices that he makes and i really think that that comes to a full fruition in the competition that zach and uh, uh josh have for allison yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that that fight at the end that they have is a clear dueling of the cocks. You know, <laughs> it's just yeah, these, these two penises going at it, you know, where in and, and that wonderful scar that she has on the back, you know, of, 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 her, of her neck 
could actually be interpreted as her losing her virginity, which we were talking about. And I thought it was great. There's a huge metaphorical film in Super Dark Times. And I, I want everyone to see this film. It's not, uh, I won't say it's on par with a ghost story. I don't even want to compare or anything like that. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I, I watched this. This is fresh in my mind from this morning. And I still, I, I feel like watching it again because there, I, I know that there are bits and parts of the elements that are that are in there that are really, really interesting. Like that journey into the forest that you can borrow directly from Shakespeare where yeah. all these mystical things happen and all that. These kids go into that forest and they come out different. The same way as in, in a very much a tragic play that you'll have in, in, in Shakespeare. Yeah. And so I thought that was cool. Uh, even like uh, we were talking about, you know, there's that Whitcomb guy that apparently commits suicide, but then Zach thinks that maybe Josh killed him. And that's the way rumors spread around yeah. school. They create Absolutely. auras I mean, around that's, certain that's people. I also like the idea that you, when you suggested the bridge being this sort of thing, they all have to cross maybe as a metaphor, maybe to adulthood, maybe and that, sort that's of the, the thing, yeah. the trials that in in the potential death of the drug dealer kid, they say he jumped off the bridge, you know, and killed himself. Yeah. that night as a suicide, that's fascinating. If you know, some people just can't even cross the bridge. I think that's a great way to interpret that. that Absolutely, awesome. Uh, yeah. So I mean, a lot of the imagery there that you're saying is great, and it is. It's it's very important to point out that this is a, a male centric story so this is not something that yeah. needs to be interpreted from like a it doesn't uh represent uh the female perspective enough i agree but it's not trying to it's very much about these boys and and sort of that toxic masculinity i get it yeah yeah i 100 yeah, so agree with you it's it's definitely a, an, an insight into that so that's why when the, the girl she's seen as a love interest here it's because that's what these kids they get the short shift i'll give it to you yeah absolutely um so that's something to, to bear in mind it's not it's not like a everybody's welcome kind of story it's very much a one-sided opinion right which i think is fascinating and i think the a lot of the imagery you're saying it, it makes a lot of sense i just to me, that that works in one bundle. I I, I agree that the dreams and the the violence and the the virginity aspect are hard to read another way, you know. So I think that metaphor. I, I, that metaphorical side of things definitely works. And I definitely did see the film as something that was uh, about burgeoning sexuality and yeah. sort of the, the competitive nature, the, the whole fucking measuring cock side of thing that, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's totally. So it's, it's, it's not like it says like, look at how big my cock is, but it's definitely like, it's very clear once it's in your head that this is yeah, what you're yeah. doing. Do you want to play with the sword? Yeah, exactly. Sword. You know, and, and because it sets out with such a, from literally one of the first lines, it sets out about the, the aggressive sexuality of these, of these boys it it paints that picture vividly how this is ultimately the driving the tearing force behind what happens to relationships between people from from boys of new age what sort of defines them in and as they move forward into adulthood what helps them sort of embrace women in uh, as real people maybe in that case characters like josh aren't cut out you know sometimes they just they become this sort of aggressive uh character who really mis- yeah, abuses yeah. women and, and 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 treats them very poorly and right. i i get that but i think that message i don't think that's very relatable for a start and it doesn't have to be relatable but I think the, the the start of the film is quite relatable uh, yeah. from a from a male perspective. You're talking about them sitting on the couch watching the like porn through that that yeah. I mean, screen. again, not something I've done, but it's something that's very like understandable, you know. It, yeah, but it also shows that their ver- their vision of what women are yeah, is absolutely. skewed, right? The fact Definitely. that they can't even get a channel, they're not processing the whole thing, right? Absolutely, and and as a logical conclusion to toxic masculinity, that separate ambitions, you know, the one that's sort of this more peaceful, romantic side becomes almost shocked 
when embraced by real romance, like this opportunity yeah. when Allison starts approaching Sack as a, as a, as a potential romance, she starts making the moves to him. Yeah. He doesn't know what to do because it's not like porn. It doesn't work like porn, so he's he's in shock. He he never kisses yeah, back. No he never moves yeah. in any way towards her. And the other side of that coin is when uh, Josh, if you want to take the metaphorical reading of it, violently mm-hmm. sexually assaults her. Uh, yeah. Because that's what he thinks sex works like. And I, that's that's fascinating in itself. It's a very clear image. Yeah. But Then we can play into rape discourse. Yeah, exactly. Moment. There's lots of important things there. I, yeah. I just say, like, it does a good job becoming a moral movie more than a relatable movie. I, it uses relatability to leapfrog into moral stand, standings on these bigger issues. And I think that's... Very interesting. But I think that the elements that it sets up gives you room to talk about, rather than toxic masculinity, just general poor masculinity, in which okay. the, the drama doesn't have to be so pronounced. It, it, these characters can fall apart for far more relatable means, and there's room for that. And it can still be about sexuality. It can still be about that pressure. But it feels like there's there was a room there, and it was building towards the idea that really it's all sack becoming petty and jealous and envious of Josh's inherent sexuality. There's room there in in his fantasies and in his sort of betrayal of of Josh where we should see this character as something of a villain uh, and that he he should be learning a lesson here. And he never does. You know, it feels like we we go a different way and it's more about the the violent (laughs) aspects of sexuality, which is fine. I just feel like it's harder to tell that other story. And when the elements are so close... It feels like you have to, you know, like it's right there. It's so close to grasp. Like I love the setup and I feel like that was the the difficult challenge for this. I get it. But do you think Phillips is actually asking you to pick a side? Does he really put the guy out? No, that's what I mean. That ambiguity, that ambiguity in that reading shows that everybody's at fault. And that it's really the sexuality that tears people apart, uh, and, and these hormones, and um, that's that's far more real than a moral, you know, one way or the other reading, you know. I know, but there's there's an inherent paradox with the messages that you're talking about to me. Look, I mean, at one point during um, during a, the, the film, Bill Clinton's on the on the on the screen yeah, talking right. about ma- making choices, uh-huh, right? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. And then you're like, dude, you can't, you can't. How can I take you seriously <laughs> yeah, because exactly. you're the one talking? Yeah. Well, hindsight. <laughs> well, exactly, you know. So there is that that paradoxical nature where even the male figures that these young men have aren't even part of the story. We don't see any fathers. Yeah, we see very true. Bill Clinton that's took taken advantage of his secretary. We also see a teacher at the beginning of the film who is talking to the young Allison, basically, who's who's uh, saying, "Hey, well, you know," he takes her aside to tell her she's got a good grade. Now. The face that that guy has, you're like, dude, she's a minor. You can't yeah, look absolutely. at a student like that. That is that is sexual predatory, and it seems to be hinting at that maybe like with with the the the, the kids that they have, they don't have any real examples of how to become men. Yeah, because absolutely. even the people that are in power are as duplicitous and fucked up as they are at during adolescence. And so I thought that was a really interesting thing to keep it in. Yeah. Even there's another mm-hmm. movie I couldn't pinpoint what the movie was, where the, there's a, a a woman screaming on screen while Zach is actually sleeping on the couch, where she's like, "Help me, help me!" Yeah. Where you have these women, she seems to be trying to escape some guy, so that acts as a foreshadowing to what's going to happen to Allison at the end of the film with Josh. And but I mean, I mean, what chance do these guys have if the examples that are actually running the country or teaching them in schools aren't even showing them the right way to actually interact with women that it still remains that blurry fucking tv where you know it's pay-per-view porn where you're like i 
guess maybe I should try this. It's very true. I mean, yeah, society is fucked that way. It really is. I get, <laughs> I get the commentary isn't ineffective. That's what I mean. Like, right. I, I I feel like the story, like what the, the moral standpoint here about that toxic masculinity and the role models that you're pointing out there in which there are none and basically everyone is fathered by porn. <laughs> like, that's... Uh, <laughs> That's, a, that's a cruel designer, reality right? when it comes to sexuality. And it's yeah. very clear why that ends up becoming, like, it divides Zach and Josh in their standpoints there. Uh, right. Their relationship, though, I don't feel that fully explains why they fall apart, you know? Like, I feel like that explains why they are set apart morally. But, like, I believe the characters so much as real people that it feels like yeah. it went too far trying to sell me on the fact oh, okay. that these are human beings. Because I believe that I fell for a line sinker. <laughs> okay, no, I, I get what you mean. But to me, I saw these... I mean, once we get to to uh, Daryl's uh, death, I was like, "These are these are archetypes." I I'm starting yeah, to understand. Yeah, exactly I, I totally agree with that. I think once okay. once that tragic murder falls in of one of the kids the story definitely goes down a very specific allegorical path because you're like well i can't believe like that's never going to really happen like no kid's going to fucking accidentally get exactly. stabbed to death you know on, on such a and cartoonish I, circumstance over an argument like this you know yeah but could it also be that josh actually might have feelings for daryl and which is why he's very yeah uh, i totally got that vibe i agree they, exactly so i mean really that if josh is is, is thinking about experimenting uh maybe being a little bit more curious towards uh-huh. uh, the same sex. I mean, I think that Josh did have some sort of feelings, which is why he was always uh, being pushy with him, testy or something like that. He was kind of mm-hmm. denying himself those feelings by just being an asshole to him all the time. Yeah. And so that whole sword sequence, him falling on the sword, could actually play out as a very violent sexual scene that you know, it could, could could be that that's where Josh becomes so confused about who he is, yeah. so conflicted. And that's why he decides to push, push Zach away. And then after that, go back towards him. He's like, ah, I just want to hang out, you know. And then he decides to maybe experiment with with Allison, you know, by bringing her. Yeah, weed, which I, is, that's know, interesting because that sets up an idea that this is actually about. This does set Sack as a villain as such because he neglects his gay friend, you know. Or could be that too. Yeah, you know, like that. That sets up the idea that Josh made a move as such on Daryl. Uh, if you use the, the sword as the imagery, then it's yeah. sort of like he sexually advanced on Daryl in some way. Yeah. And uh, maybe accidentally out of frustration or confusion, but certainly it, it looks sexual. And that severs Sack's relationship to Josh as mm-hmm. a second as he second guesses him about his own sexuality and it becomes sort of this thing where he, he maybe Sack is being portrayed as a homophobe here. Uh, that... Could his 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 desperation to to go out with um Allison then becomes something that he doubles down with sexually as if to prove himself and then the idea here is that Josh does the same thing after his relationship with Sack deteriorates and then he so it goes so far that he starts actually uh, raping women to prove how straight he is, and yeah, exactly. ultimately that sort of deterioration leads to him in the cop car being a symbolism of his sort of now being you know fairly set down a path of you know criminality only for the fact that people didn't embrace his sexuality in that There's period. That. And I mean that's that's I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting way of reading it. But I mean I mean even when you're reading books uh, literature and you look at old films, the cigarette has always been a, a phallic symbol. I mean, women smoking yeah. have always been that that idea of, of, of you know, they're, they're actually 
coming forward towards the penis. And who is the first guy to actually light up in the film? It's Daryl. Mm. Daryl is the one who wants to smoke weed. Daryl's the one that's actually smoking a cigarette. You know, where, Great. you know, you'd have Josh reading into that saying that, oh, maybe he has some sort of, you know, he's he's telling me that he is welcome to probably experimenting with same sex. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then that's the way you get the girls at the end that are looking for the weed as well. And they're both smoking that joint, you know, where they're like, okay, yes, they're clearly heterosexual. But then you'll have Josh that's actually kind of confused where he's saying, no, it's okay. I don't want any where he's denying that penis, if you will, that yeah, symbol. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's like, no, I don't want that because look what happened when the, the first time I tried, I ended up hurting myself not only me but some other guy you know yeah yeah absolutely so i mean that's that's i mean the fact that there's so much there already i mean it's very clear that the imagery here registers very very clearly with some form of male sexual story that we all kind of grew up with something of the experience of being a, a teenager and a boy in society i mean it doesn't necessarily have to be a homosexual one but you know i have friends who were homosexual i could understand that they were there was a separation at a point when we we didn't accept them full right because it was something new to us you know it was that was a hard period I, i'm sure it was definitely for him you know that's 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 how shit kids are you know if we are just yeah when you're uninformed you become a dick you you, you hurt people that way it's fascinating to see how this film tackles it i I feel that some maybe that the excessiveness of the violence then maybe buys too much into its reading i'm not saying it takes the audience for granted but maybe it's more than we needed to deal with you know there was something a little simpler that could have been told here but ultimately it's hard to deny that there's a lot of great imagery here that you can reinterpret and i mean the fact that we come off with well first we come with our own readings and then we start launching into two or three separate readings is a really good (laughs) sign of this film has a lot of good stuff working for it and i think again the important thing is that it's sold by its characters and these performances are the absolute center point i mean the direction is very patient and well done as well and oh yeah there's a lot the use of simple quite cheap imagery is uh you know with the low budget is is fascinating it actually does a really good job with that yeah there's no real shaky cam or anything like that the yeah, guy really it's... has it's not even sterile filmmaking he his shots are precise yeah, mm-hmm. Philip's shots yeah. are precise they communicate exactly what they need to communicate at all times and it's such wonderful confident directing for a yeah. guy that's only basically made short films absolutely absolutely and it, there's it does fear into that sort of reverie where it, it takes on dream language and then it becomes a sort of open book where that is alienating to people so it's not going to be that great super bad experience where it like hits a generation you yeah know? Like, it's not going to be that and it's not completely the other way either yeah it, that's it's not true. larry clark's kids in any way either right you know where you're like christ i didn't have that i wasn't like that growing up what the fuck's going on and i wasn't like super bad either there's some sort of relatability yeah absolutely whereas a film like super dark times i feel like this one is somewhat relatable if you can get past that first level reading of it you know maybe it is definitely to to outliers I don't know if you know the popular popular crowd's gonna give a shit about Super Dark Times, but if you're no, they an want Transformers in relationships with your friends and stuff as a, as a male, that there's definitely a lot of, of good imagery here. Even like a, a fucking it opens with the death of a stag. I mean that's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Yeah, that was the this first scene where and that that clearly is something that doesn't come back up in the film. 
Yeah, absolutely. All. It's a, it's a definitely it's a non sequitur. And, and I mean, we I, I forgot to look up what the hell that would mean. Stag. Well, stag is a it's a virulent you know imagery. You know, it's definitely this sort of great male pronunciation, but there's also a tranquility to it. So it could be about the homosexuality angle, or it's it could be the death of innocence uh, because deers are innocent. So. It could be absolutely just about, you know, how adolescence tears these relationships apart, you know? It's it's very yeah, it's, much, it's, it's wide open, wide open. Well, there you go. <laughs> so I think that's really cool. I mean, it's Harry Potter's Patronus. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> Clearly, it's connected with a generation. <laughs> Look how big Harry Potter's penis is. W-O-O. He's so graceful. He just keeps waving his <laughs> yeah. wand at people and he making shit He got it from happen. his father. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was cool but i mean like i said the more i talk about this this super dark times the more i think that more people have to see it i mean yeah absolutely. i don't think it's been released yet uh, no. it was released uh, i don't know if it was uh, the world premiere at fantasia uh, we were lucky enough to to to, 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 to talk to people well. and get a screener for it um and i want to tag them in this so that it to, so them to tell us no you guys are completely wrong this face value the entire time <laughs> <laughs> well it's but to say try <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but I mean, I I really uh, the performances are great. I had seen um, uh, Charlie. I don't know if it's Tehan or Tehan. Uh, anyway, he was in Ozark. I was watching Ozark with my girlfriend not too long ago, yeah. and he's with Jason Bateman. He plays one of the the characters on the on the other side. I don't remember exactly what his name is, but uh, he, he Jesus Christ, this this young fucking actor is goddamn amazing yeah i want to see him in everything now owen campbell did a great job too elizabeth cappuccino is very sweet but daryl max talisman fucking hell man what a performance oh, from yeah. that guy I mean, what a, like it, it like hit the nail on the head i mean it's terrifying it's really great and you were right i mean the, this what holds this film together is the cast and how genuinely awesome they are mm-hmm. yeah i really want to see them these are these are rising stars in my opinion and kevin phillips i'm interested in seeing where the hell this director goes because yeah absolutely a, this, he's clearly got a grasp on how to communicate some weird mm. shit he gets film man he, he gets how it works how to how to communicate right stories to in the right format uh it's it's a huge thing to take away from this experience is that yeah. he just got it so it was great great yeah. work yeah so i mean if you guys can get to a screening of super dark times i want this film to get buzz i think it's an important film i think it's a film that i could show uh my kids i think that they you know i obviously like if you're looking at it as i did as a metaphorical film and i might like i said i might be completely off i might be completely wrong i really think super dark times really really gets to the heart of how complicated growing up you know crossing over that coming of age for for young men obviously i I, there must be uh um a female counterpart. Yeah, I was, you know, just maybe the I film was literally thir- just thinking 13. that. Yeah. 13 is a movie that came out, I think, 10 years ago. You could check that out, you know, because that could be a really interesting uh, pairing with Super Dark Times. But uh, yeah, man, I love this fucking movie. I really, 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 really love this movie. I'm glad I saw it. I, it's one of those films that I can't wait to rewatch. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, that well, that kind of brings our discussion on Fantasia uh, to a close. Uh, so general final takeaway? No, last thoughts. I mean, the, the films that I think that you guys should definitely see, Super Dark Times, top of the list with Ghost Story, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, go in if you guys want to see Brigsby Bear. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a fun film. I think it's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, my Friend Dahmer, I'm not telling you to avoid it. I think it's a, a good film. It's nothing spectacular. I was expecting something much better than I got a chance to see. Shin Godzilla, 100%. Go watch that. It's going to be fun Can't if you can get past the fact that there's <laughs> sub- subtitles. Uh, Mohawk, uh, I can't say that I was a fan. You guys, if you like 
exploitation genre. I understand that there's a whole historical aspect to it that's really, really interesting. However, I really think that it could have been uh, done much better. If you're going to tell an important story about how um, indigenous peoples are supposed to have the rights to the land and stuff like that, don't go on a revenge film. Do something else. Do a historical drama. Explain it. Make a documentary. Do something like that. Something that's going to be really affecting. This one could be a little bit off-putting to a general audience. So the message doesn't really get to the people you want it to get to. Yeah, right. So that's it for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I say, again, I'll double down on Super Dark Times. And I'm sure a ghost story, which I'll see soon. So <laughs> I'm sure that's great. You probably should see that. As well as a taxi driver. Keep a lookout for that. Uh, I'd say that some people will like Better Watch Out on Tilt. So uh, you can keep an eye out for that. That will hit some audiences more than it hit me. I, you know, there's, there is interpretive stuff, so maybe Jason will like them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to see uh, The Villainess and Most Beautiful Island in another format, uh, uh, but I, I think they were good ideas, and unfortunately I can't recommend the films, but I think the ideas and the people involved should be on everyone's watch list so read into those look out for those uh legend of the broken sword hero yeah it, it didn't really impress me but um sure no i mean if you if, if you're into that you're into that so there you go <laughs> cool all right so shall we close this out sir let's do it all right so thank you very much for tuning in to uh atlantic screen connections coverage of the fantasia international film festival and our talk on super dark times a film directed by kevin phillips yeah. i want to thank uh the people that i met at the festival daniel Schubert bad thank you so much really nice guy i had a fun time with you brian tallarico and justine smith and edward douglas thank you so much uh for for uh, spending time with me it was really great to get to know you guys get some input exchange ideas on films which is really cool absolutely um i'm looking forward to talking to you guys again thank you for saving a seat for me brian twice <laughs> so that was really really awesome and um yeah special shout outs go out to uh the usual suspects you know who you are we love you very much lee uh yeah so my name is lee brady you can catch me at big pick reviews on twitter and you can check out uh our review site bigpicturereviews.co.uk jason as he said has his article up on a ghost story uh you can check that out i had a great time covering this i want to thank everybody who replied to the screener emails uh you know got all the seven films to us through email i mean that's fantastic and it was great we uh we were on and off communicating with everybody trying to get some yep. information and extra films and uh to get seven let alone any is, is a huge number so it was great got us great coverage of this and i'm very happy can't wait to do it for another film festival or come back to fantasia specifically would be great to do again because that they were just a breeze to talk to but yeah that's absolutely everything you can see a lot of, i'll have reviews up for these films on bigpicturereviews.co.uk whenever they're up they should be up maybe in the same week as this episode so keep an eye out for them and uh yeah that's me cool a uh, special shout out to mike ross thank you so much for your comment on baby driver we really really appreciated it and i also want to give a shout out to carson one of my friends from nova scotia who sent me this wonderful message this morning and we're going to get you on the show as a result <laughs> he says i feel like i should be allowed on your show just to review Michael Bay movies. I really enjoyed Explosion Number 9. It really brought overwhelming sense of finality to the scene, whereas Explosion Number 12 I found to be completely pedantic. It doesn't serve to help any character growth. Uh. Best part is, it works for every single of his movies. And so yes, Carson, you know what? I talked to Lee and we, we have something. We have something for you. For yeah. You. <laughs> I'll be sending you a message sometime soon. That's it for me. I'm Jason Michael. You can find me on Twitter at AtlanticSC. Be sure to go like the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast Facebook page, as well as our Instagram at Atlantic SC 
podcast. That's it for us this week. We have no idea what the hell we're covering next. But anyway, stay tuned. Yep. I'm pretty sure you'll be happy to hear from us again. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.